0: Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live,
1: talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen.
0: And uh, good morning to you and welcome to uh, June 8th edition of Lynn Cullen Still Alive. Oh, looking out my window. It's a beautiful sunny day. I can hear the birds singing in the trees. And every once in a while, the the rotors of a helicopter that had been very loud just about 40 minutes ago, now a little bit more off in the distance. And uh, it is yet another protest march um, in my neighborhood going on now. A little more about that in just a bit. Uh, Okay. I was thinking last night as I was sitting trying to digest some of the happenings of this weekend um about a moment in my life where I felt an ex uh a resolve, a desperate resolve. It was the first time in my life I had felt what I was feeling. I was sitting in a classroom in my elementary school. I was in third grade. The teacher, Mrs. DeWitt, had just said, now we are going to, for the last time, go over how to tell time. And I felt such foreboding, such fear, such desperation but it led to resolve because I couldn't I was in every way a very good student but there was something about the face of a clock that terrorized me I couldn't ever get it and Mrs. DeWitt said I know most of you children." Already know, but this will be for those of you who still haven't learned. This is your, you know, essentially, what I was hearing, this is your last chance. And I remember feeling like you've got to get it. And you've got to not look like you're trying as hard as you're going to look. Because I didn't want people to know I didn't know. It was something I was ashamed of. And I listened like I'd never listened before, and I swear I did get it. But that's what I've been thinking about this, what's going on in our country now. So many times, In my lifetime, our nation has come to a moment, a moment that we hoped would prove a turning point. We hope would be the teachable moment where we could start as a nation to really move forward together and all of those moments have passed there have been some progress made after some of these moments but there's always this this retraction this backlash Of white people that pulls us all back, and then we end up in the same place again. I'm feeling now that this, guys, this is our last chance. And I think an awful lot of people, more than I can ever remember, are, like me, that little terrified kid in Mrs. DeWitt's class, I think now people are desperately trying to pay attention, to learn. I do think that this is our chance. And, you know, um, in the period in this nation's history when I was a young person in the streets uh, protesting, it was protesting about civil rights, protesting about the Vietnam War, protesting about women's place, I was out there in the 60s, in the 70s. But in the 60s, this country saw conflagration and rioting in the nation's cities. They were set afire. And the president at the time, Lyndon Johnson... Said, we've got to understand what's happening here. So he did what presidents do. He created a commission. And it was a bipartisan commission. And it was made up of, uh, I don't know, the Republican office holders, Democratic office holders, uh, I think. Uh, the NAACP was in. I think there was some police chief, uh, or there was. It was a pretty good, uh, you know, diverse representative group. It was uh, chaired by the governor of Illinois, whose name was Kerner, and they did their homework. They talked to the people who had rioted. They tried to understand what was going on. And in 1968, they put out their findings. The Kerner Commission report. And you know what? If you read that now, it could well be a report written Right now. And it shows again how we have missed the opportunities of these teachable moments. We have not paid attention, we have not learned much of anything. Listen to what the bipartisan Kerner Commission signed off on. I'm going to read just one little part, okay? 1968. In this part, they're talking about the role of the police in causing the unrest and exacerbating unrest. Remember, bipartisan commission. Quote, the police are not merely a spark factor. To some Negroes, police have come to symbolize white power, white racism, and white repression. And the fact is that many police do reflect and express these white attitudes. The atmosphere of hostility and cynicism is reinforced by a widespread belief among negroes in the existence in the existence of police brutality and in a double standard of justice and protection one for negroes and one for whites. That's what the Kerner Commission, when they took time to listen, heard. And then the Kerner Commission said this about what could be done to prevent this or to make some progress. And this is what they told the president and the country, quote, The commission condemns moves to equip police departments with mass destruction weapons, such as automatic rifles, machine guns, and tanks. Weapons which are designed to destroy, not to control, have no place in densely populated urban communities. Okay. 1968, the Kerner Commission. And it's worth reading. It's worth reading to see the sort of endless loop that we have been on and how we need to break it. Break it. And now, is a possible moment. Something different is going on. As I said, I heard the helicopters over my house again this morning, and I thought, <laughs> what? They've been over my house almost every day because there have been lots of demonstrations in the east end of Pittsburgh, where I live. I found out by looking online that, yes, there was a protest. It had begun just a few blocks from my house at Starrett Middle School in Point Breeze. And it was a march of teachers and staff and some students of Pittsburgh Public Schools. And they were marching from Starrett to Colfax School in Squirrel Hill. And I guess no march can happen without, what, the police putting up uh, helicopters? Teachers and staff people can't march down the street here in the East End without uh, helicopter constant overhead. I guess taking pictures, I don't know. What are they there for? I don't quite get the helicopters. I heard the helicopters, as I said, all weekend on Friday they were really loud, again, and I was, I was sitting here actually trying to write something about uh, George Floyd for an event that I had to emcee, a virtual event. So there I am thinking of what, it, what to say, and that noise, that din over my head, and my phone rang and it was a friend and she said, are you at the demonstration? It looks like it's heading right over to you. And I said, well, I hear the helicopters. And I grabbed my dog and ran toward the march. And so I I joined this march. It was a march of overwhelmingly white, young people. Um, it was called the Allies March, which explains the all, sort of almost all-white uh, nature of it. And I, as I said, I'm a veteran of an awful lot of very large protest marches in the 60s, 70s, and some after. I was blown away by the seriousness of these young people. Uh, there was no sense that of sort of frivolity, which every once in a while you could get in some marches, a sense of, you know, wow, oh, isn't this neat? Look what we're doing. None of that. None of that deadly serious, all masked, extraordinarily well-organized, clearly marked people who were marshals, clearly marked people with uh, red masking tape crosses uh, on their backs that had medical supplies, people clearly charged with keeping the uh, protesters hydrated, And they had sunscreen and, uh, you know, truly Gatorade and water. And when the marchers stopped and sat or knelt, you could hear a pin drop as they listened to the speeches that were given. And the speeches were extraordinary, too. And by young people with such passion and coherence. And at one point when the march left a little green called Lindhurst Green, uh, which borders on Beechwood Boulevard, they had sat there for a bit and listened to speeches. As they got up to go, they were, they were told by the organizers, remember, leave nothing behind, no trash, nothing. We will leave this place cleaner than when we came. And they did. I was so impressed. And I couldn't help but leave there and for the first time feel hope that these young people who are facing such an uncertain future, that these young people might save us. I felt hope. And it felt good. Sort of like maybe this time maybe this time and of course there have been other signs of something different signs that maybe donald trump has run out of anything to pull out of his bag of tricks that nothing nothing he has always relied on, distraction, blaming, uh, lying. Doesn't seem to be working very well. Jennifer Sr. said, it's a perfect image of him. She said, he's flailing like an overturned turtle. And we see now that while maybe this country before COVID-19, before George Floyd maybe could have survived four years of this repulsive incompetence in the white house as he as he always says what have you got to lose well now of course more and more americans know the answer to that question <laughs> everything everything And now we hear talk of uh, defunding police. Um, Nobody knows exactly what that would mean, and it would mean different things for different cities that, in fact, move to pull money from the budgets for police and uh, give that money to other places in the community, (laughs) like the people, like helping people. Um, I'm going to leave that for a while because that's something that we're going to probably see more and more of, especially with uh, the um, Minneapolis uh, City Council even going further than that and saying that they have enough people on uh, signing on at, in their city council to literally abolish their police department to, you know, destroy it and start over. now that sounds frightening actually, but I'm sure it would be something done incrementally. Um, so Of course, uh, some people are, are freaking out now about that. Everybody just take a deep breath. What's happening now is something that should have happened a million years ago. Because our police culture in this country is in need of abolishment. It is a culture suffused with brutality and with racism. And it is part and parcel of the problem. There's that wonderful, famous quote from 1968, the Chicago Democratic Convention. I was there. Um, where the mayor of Chicago at the time, Mayor Daley, the first, I can't remember the first part of it, but he hotly, to people who suggested that it was the Chicago police who were rioting, not the protesters, that it was the police who caught, he said something like, the police are not there, to create disorder there the police are there to preserve disorder <laughs> and I thought, yeah, well, they're doing a hell of a job. But I want to share some words with, with you uh written by uh Jamel Bowie and uh talking about police. And accountability, and police, and history. African American observers have never had any illusions about who the police are meant to serve and protect. The police, James Baldwin wrote in his 1960 essay about unrest in Harlem. Now, this is interesting because I already quoted the Kerner Commission to you. That's from 68. Here is James Baldwin in 1960. And again, all of this was put out there for us if we could listen to it and take it in. And the overwhelming vast majority of America did not. Bother. We cannot afford to do that again. James Baldwin. The police represent the force of the white world. And that world's real intentions are simply for that world's criminal profit and ease to keep the black man corralled and in his place. Police presence in urban America is an interesting thing, right? the police are ubiquitous in black neighborhoods where they look like an occupying army half the time. You don't see that in white neighborhoods. I remember once as a TV reporter, so this would be in the eighties that the police and they did this every once in a while, usually for some reason needing good PR or something, they would call the newsroom and say, hey, we'd be willing to take uh, one of your reporters and photographers with us. Uh, We're going to be doing some drug busts. And uh, you can come along. Oh, yes, of course. Well, we like nothing better. Great video. Are you kidding me? So eagerly, a reporter and a photographer would go along with the cops. And of course, where'd they go? Not to my house where I was probably smoking a joint. No, they went to the Hill. They went to Homewood. And with cameras rolling, they busted up somebody's house to get their marijuana, trotted them out handcuffed with the TV cameras, lights on them, always black people. And I remember saying to the assignment director, they would never invite us along if they were doing that somewhere in Squirrel Hill. And you know what? They wouldn't be doing it somewhere in Squirrel Hill. So media were always used and still are by police to give a certain picture to the American People of what crime looks like, what criminals look like, and if you're a white person and you have been ingesting local television news all your life, and you know cop shows, NYPD or CSI, whatever those CSI, all those things, we've been brainwashed into believing cops are good, cops are good, cops are good, cops are good. And when they have to be tough, they're tough. And blacks are scary, blacks are scary, blacks are drug addicts, blacks are criminals. Right? So black people know that those cops in their neighborhood aren't there to really protect them. They don't feel like they're there to protect them. And I would trust that. They would know, right? So Jamel Bowie says this, if you are trying to understand the function of policing in American society, then even a cursory glance at the history of policing in America would point you in the direction of social control and blackness in particular was always seen as requiring a level of permanent supervision and sometimes direct domination. You don't have to tell me that that's not true, because you know it is true. We've seen it. The simplest answer to the question, why don't the American police forces act as if they're accountable to black Americans, is that they were never intended to be. Jamal Bowie. We should not be surprised when the police respond with anger and contempt to demands for change from us. Nor should we be surprised by their love of Donald Trump, who has been inciting them to be even more violent. Jamel Bowie again, Trump is someone who embodies the political and social order the police have so often defended, which is all to say that the nightly clashes between protesters and the police are to an extent, a microcosm of larger disputes roiling this nation. The pressures and conflicts of a diversifying country, the struggle to escape an exclusive past for a more inclusive future, and our constant battle over who truly counts, who can act as a full and equal member of this society. And who does not count? It's so much bigger than the police. They are the brutal arm of a white corporate power structure. the bigger problem is that and uh the propagandized brainwashed mindset of so many of us a mindset that doesn't see what's happening in front of our very faces a mindset that willingly acquiesces to the building of more and more prisons and the pop and, and incarcerating huge, huge percentages of our black population putting our tax dollars into incarceration, not into education. So when people freak about, defund the police, yeah. Do you know what percentage the cops get of the Budgets of cities, I don't have the number for Pittsburgh. I wish somebody would get it. How much of the budget goes to the cops? Because those percentages are mind-blowing. I've got, this is from Reuters. Good God. Um. Chicago's budget, Jesus, what is that? Why can't I read this graph? I'm not good at graphs. If Mrs. DeWitt had said this is the last chance you will have to understand a graph. Uh, Oakland, Chicago, Minneapolis, Houston, a humongous percentage of their, this is why I can't get the bottom line and I'm unable to see it, um, over 50%. Over 50% go to the cops. You wonder why they have uniforms uh, and then more uniforms and then, oh, let's see, I have a closet full. This is for going to a, when I go to a protest. This is for when I'm standing in a, you know, the, the number of accoutrements for each individual cop is mind-blowing. Somewhere I've got some numbers that I just saw today.
1: Huge. Just huge.
0: And I can't. Damn. I always think I have this stuff for you, and then I try to get it up on my computer, and I become an old lady like, what? I don't know how to do this. Um, so, damn it. I will get the, if anyone has those. Um, ooh, ooh, I think maybe I got a chance here. Here. Um, okay. Let's look at numbers. <sighs> Come on, baby. Give me, I'm sorry. Still not finding what I want to find. Um, Oh, maybe this is it. Okay, here it is. I finally got it. Thank you. The percentage of money that police departments get is often the largest expense in, in cities. I mean, no one gets anywhere near what the cops get. Okay. Minneapolis, their percentage of the budget is closing in on 36%. Imagine that. One-third of the budget, more than a third. Chicago, 39%. Oakland, California, 42%. Now, New York City, which has a larger police force then probably a lot of countries in the world have military forces um, that aren't as big. But believe it or not, it says here in this Reuters reporting that New York's budget, only 8% of their budget goes to the, the cops, which I find astonishing. Los Angeles, over a quarter. St. Louis, a third. And on and on and on. Where else could that money go? Are you kidding? Where else could that money go? People say, you can't defund the police. Well, we've sat by while we've seen public education defunded, right? Public transit defunded. Social programs that help the least of us, defunded, slashed. These are choices that we make that show where our priorities lie as a people. The money spent on police who aren't exactly as we see doing a hell of a job could be better used, diverted to social programs. There are police in our schools, but there isn't a nurse. There are police in our schools, but there's not enough social workers or psychologists. All of the stuff drug addiction, mental illness, homelessness stuff that could be alleviated, ameliorated, helped hugely by some funding. These things go begging, but the cops never go begging. The head of the uh, police union in uh, Minneapolis, have you seen him? Wow. There's a poster boy for everything that's wrong. The extraordinary political power of police unions, and I've talked about that last week as well. I have been a union representative. I have been a union delegate to a labor council. That was way back in my days in um, Wisconsin. I have always stood up for unions. But the police union, my God, they have got to be reined in. Our politicians are terrified of them. They can buy district attorneys, council members, legislators. There was a Minneapolis uh, city councilman who before all this had been talking about we've got to pull some money out of the police department and we need to create uh, something that deals with violence prevention. And you know what happened? The police in Minneapolis in an absolutely illegal action stopped responding quickly to any 911 calls that came in from this guy's constituents. As soon as a call would come in, we need help, we need help, and it was determined, oh, well, that's in his sit on it for a while, huh? And as this councilman says, in this regard, these cops, they operate sort of like a protection racket. Mm -hmm. The head of the Minneapolis Police Union is, uh, there's a picture of him uh, gazing with adulation at Donald Trump at a rally. This guy, his name is bob croll he uh he has often referred to protesters as terrorists, and I'll tell you when my dog and I walked with those terrorists on Friday, they were a nice bunch of terrorists. This guy, who is the head of the police union in Minneapolis um, has been the subject of at least 29 complaints against him as a cop. And by the way, as you see, George Floyd's killer had the same kind of huge numbers of complaints against him. And only twice had any complaint led to just a little slap on the wrist for him. Police chiefs regularly trying to get rid of the real bad actors, they might fire one. And the police union, through arbitration, invariably gets the cop reinstated. I listened to a police chief the other day say that he has fired the same officer more than once. I fire him, get rid of him, and damn if he doesn't come back because of the union. And I fire him again, and damn if he doesn't come back. Any attempt to defund or get a handle on police culture is going to be an extraordinary fight. And I wouldn't put it past the cops to do the kinds of things that they did in Minneapolis and more. Now, I must say that since the first few days of protests, the Pittsburgh police seem to have gotten control of themselves a bit. And they seem to be handling this better. The march I was at, they were not all that visible. They hung back like a block or two. They sat on their motorcycles in the residential uh, streets behind where the protests were. So I uh, I don't know. We're really in for a, a pretty amazing rest of this year. And I do also want to say that I'm very worried about the health of these protesters. So many of them, I think, are probably going to get sick. Um, I'll tell you, it's hard to march and, uh, chant and, um, do what protesters do with a mask on and, and yet people kept them on, but you have seen a lot of video where they confront people who do not have masks on, who are screaming in their faces. And when police exacerbate, when police create disorder, as they did so astonishingly in Lafayette Park in Washington, D.C., when police create disorder and use tear gas, it is an outrageous act of endangering public health protesters are exercising their rights as Americans. Cops have been lobbing tear gas into peaceful protests as they did in Lafayette Park. And if you've ever been tear gassed, it hurts. It hurts like hell. You're eyes are burning, your skin is burning, your nose starts running, you start hacking and coughing, and this, the result during a pandemic, a respiratory illness pandemic, is that the police fire tear gas into the protesters, and then protesters gagging, coughing, pulling their masks off, desperate to try to get some air, some relief, end up spewing, perhaps, COVID-19 into the air. Tear gas, which, as we noted last week, is not even allowed, according to the Geneva Conventions, in war. But there are some hopeful signs. Robert E. Lee's statue going down. The Confederate flag going down. Boy, is it about time. And this will be fought like like hell, right? I mean, I can't even imagine. But I have here the... um, I have here what the Department of the Navy's, uh, actually the Marine Corps, put out um, to all of their people um, this weekend. And if you haven't seen it, the the big headline is, this is an official document coming from the Marines, removal of public displays of the Confederate battle flag. And it flat out says, depictions of the Confederate flag are unauthorized in public and in workspaces um, on all installations. Depictions of the flag on bumper stickers, on clothing, on mugs, on posters, the flag itself, etc., are banned. And then the Marine Corps says this. The Confederate flag has all too often been co-opted by violent extremist and racist groups whose divisive beliefs have no place in the Marine Corps. Our history as a nation and events like the violence in Charlottesville in 2017 highlight the divisiveness the use of the flag has had on our society. This presents a threat to our core values unit cohesion, security, and good order and discipline. It must be addressed. Uh, We charge commanders with the authority and responsibility to take all necessary and lawful measures to maintain law and order and to protect installation personnel and property. The Corps shall remove the Confederate battle flag from all installation public spaces and work areas to support our core values. Okay. It's something. It's something. And it will be fought and pushed back upon, yes. But as many have pointed out, you'd be hard pressed to go to any. Uh, other nation where there has been a civil war or some kind of horror. And after it's over, to see statues of the losers, statues of the traitors in our case, the adulation, the uplifting of the very values that were defeated in the Civil War. You don't see any pictures or statues of Hitler in Germany, of Franco in Spain. Only here, have we allowed for a hundred and fifty plus years? The enthronement, the and and let's be clear about what that's about. It's about intimidating black people, I'll tell you that. Culture, when they say, but it's our culture. Yeah, your murderous culture, your traitorous culture, which should not be celebrated in any way. We have a caller. Caller, go ahead, please.
1: Hey, Lynn Collin, is this you? Yeah. Wow. Hey, I, this is Linda Welner. I think I called you about a month ago and talked about, of course, the cyclotron of the heart that nobody knows about. Uh, but I was just catching what you were saying, and almost everything you say, I have something to say about. But I have decided in my life to approach it with humor. And in fact, I've taken lessons in arcade comedy, and I'm very excited to finally maybe find a forum for which I can speak about exactly what you're talking about. Every single level that you're talking about. And I think that there's some things people don't know at all. They don't know, first of all, that Aryans and Caucasians are not the same. Okay, let me just say there are many races of men, and one of them is human. I think all of us women, but I'm not sure about what borderline people are because they've suffered so much. But we seem to have a divide that is getting greater and greater on every single level, and there has to be an explanation for this. There is an explanation. We have one set of people who, let's say, are embodied by people like Mr. Trump, and they they are so absolutely intent on what their agenda is, and then there's the rest of humanity. And we just don't get that there's absolutely no way that they see eye to eye with us. It's as though you were trying to make an agreement with someone who was a perpetual liar or had an agenda they didn't want you to know about. No agreement you sign, no amount of smiling, no amount of handshaking is going to do anything except perhaps bring um, pacification or quietude. (laughs) You know, but it's false because they go on and poison the environment and do the things that are anti-wholesome. let's say not life-enhancing, which saddens my heart so much. And the only yeah. explanation that I can come on is that we have two different agendas here, and it's because we are two different species of men.
0: <laughs> well, well I, we're not really two different species, but we're two. You know, we're two different people. People's. We have hive
1: it, men are hybrids, maybe. Let's put it that way. Hibers. All right. Okay. All right.
0: They have a choice. Hey, have
1: a okay. Choice hey, hey thanks for
0: your call. Have. I appreciate the call. Thank okay. you so Take much. Care. Bye. Bye. Yeah, um, I was talking to a friend yesterday, and we were talking about racism because we white folks have to talk, right? We got to talk to each other. Don't be talking to black people about racism. <laughs> uh, you know, we're like in kindergarten in our understanding. Uh, they all got PhDs called life experience. So don't be talking or explaining things to any black people, please. Shut up and listen. But my white friend and I were talking about it, and we both said how lucky we were that we were born into families that did not teach us to hate. Did not teach us to hate. Because an awful lot of kids are born into families in which they are indoctrinated from day one to fear and hate other people. Or they just can, hearing their parents talk, you know, Hearing the disparaging remarks, the off comment, "Children suck it all in, all in." There's that song. We were both. We both started almost immediately talking uh, about it um, from South Pacific. Uh, that just nails it. I think it's it's called. You you have to be carefully taught. Um, let me see if I can actually find the lyrics. I think um, I sort of know them. You have to. I, I I don't know the very beginning. Here it is. You've got. I'll try not to sing. You've got to be taught to hate and fear. You've got to be taught from year to year. It's got to be drummed in your dear little ear. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught to be afraid of people whose eyes are oddly made and people whose skin is a different shade. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be taught before it's too late. Before you are six or seven or eight. To hate all the people your relatives hate. You've got to be carefully taught. You've got to be carefully taught. And what we are seeing is that millions and millions and millions of Americans have been taught to hate, taught to fear. They have been indoctrinated before it was too late. And by the time that happens, it takes some serious undoing, because I know many people who were taught to hate and fear, who re-educated themselves, who worked on themselves. We all, we all have work to do. And I just want to um, say this. One of the things I saw um, over the weekend on Twitter that took my breath away, because there's a lot of stuff happening now that takes your breath away, right? Fox News. (laughs) Fox News actually had a segment. I'm looking at a screenshot of of a graphic that they used. This was um, in a business report on Fox News of how the stock market was going gangbusters. And Fox News actually put up a graphic. Perhaps you've seen this. that shows how much the stock market went up one week after Dr. King was assassinated, Rodney King's cop's acquittal, Michael Brown's death, and George Floyd's death. We've seen what's happened to the stock market since George Floyd's death. It's gone crazy. Crazy. Man, those guys in the market are making money hand over fist. Meanwhile, people are dying. The market loves it. Fox News actually had a graphic MLK assassination, and the graph showing good for the market. Rodney King, the market, yay. Michael Brown, yes. And the biggest jump at all, George Floyd's death. Yippee. Can you imagine, can you imagine the mindset in a newsroom that would say, hey, Tell the graphics department, we want to see how much Wall Street loves dead black men. How dead black men, man, they just light a fire under the market. Do a graph, we want to see. It is rare. But I saw, I think yesterday, that Fox News actually apologized. Apologized. That's a rarity. And the New York Times did a piece on the disconnect between the horror going on in this country now, the unrest, the deaths from the pandemic, the anxiety, the fear, nothing is the same, over 100,000 dead, incredible tensions, and the stock market, it's been a party. One of the greatest weeks ever. And that juxtaposition, the nightmare so many Americans are living, and the buoyant exaltation on Wall Street is, <laughs> well, it's one of the reasons I'm not in the market anymore. I have told you how I feel about the market. The market is disgusting to me. And in the New York Times article, they did talk to some of the uh, big guys in the market and said, how can you, I mean, what? how do you explain this? And here's how they explain it. The stock market is amoral, always has been. If you want to find morality, don't look at the stock market. Here's somebody else, an economist. He says, the stock market judges many things, but morality, that's not one of them. And it, this is the reason I have such trouble with the market. It disgusts me and the times makes it very clear and this is this is the business section it says the market is focused on one paramount thing profit money profit and that may be repulsive too many in a moment of intense and widespread human suffering, but it is not even on the radar of capitalism. As I once famously said, and then disappeared from that television show, Capitalism is not a moral system. The stock market knows nothing of morality. It knows only one thing. Greed. Greed. More, 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 more. Well, okay. I hope I'm getting all of this. I um, my computer is the. It's not my computer. It's this email program we use. It is just outrageously bad. Um, Father Joseph sent me something. Can I? I I'm going to read what I can see. It might be all of it, but I doubt it. I just, I don't know. Um, It says, is this for sharing? I imagine. I can't begin to tell you how much time I spent on the phone on what it is like for my family as African Americans. Many people have said, I didn't know or i can't believe that still happens in my day and age father joseph says they find me approachable so here's an abbreviation of what i wrote well i hope i'm seeing all of this so this is what you're saying to your white friends this is father joseph we were denied <clears throat> we were denied housing in the local community near a seminary we attended because I was told the elderly potential neighbor on the adjoining part of the duplex was set in her ways and threatened to move out if we moved in. The duplex owner was apologetic and said, we don't want you to think Kentucky is like this. But we were still turned away. In Alabama, I had children removed from my Sunday school class when their parents realized I was their teacher. Boy, you know, that. just think of that. Think of that. So these are Christians. These who want their children to be taught the, the tenets of their faith. <laughs> and they pull their kid out because the person teaching has too much melanin, I guess. What? Father Joseph goes on, when we arrived for our first army assignment in Louisiana, one of the first conversations caring colleagues had with me was about avoiding the KKK strong community a few miles away. These are the nicest stories I care to share. We are careful about where we go. We keep video recording devices close at hand when traveling by car or even jogging to stay fit. And we make helicopter parents look like rookies when it comes to doing all we can to ensure our sons are aware of and prepared for mitigating risks due to racism. Wow. Well, that's from Father Joseph, who I, many of you did not know was black. He's black. He's black. He's military. He's a priest, orthodox priest. So he he is able to... Um, Marry and have children, and he has children, his sons. And as he says, he and his wife make helicopter parents look like rookies. But unlike helicopter parents, who are helicopter parents because they just want to get their kids into Yale or something, he's talking about just trying to keep his children alive in a racist country that he spent a lifetime serving in the military as so many other black Americans and brown Americans. God help us if we don't get it. Anyone Who's white and talking to you and says anything like, "Well, I understand," when saying, but as soon as the "but" comes out of their mouth, stop them, stop them, because that's where that's where they start to belie what they don't even recognize as their own. Bigotry. All righty. That be it for me. Have a good one. Do something. Do something. We all have to ensure that this This time, we don't go back to normal. Because normal is killing our people. Normal is no place that we should want to go back to. Love you all. I do. I do